church just said, well, obviously we have not much to say to this except for maybe have online meetings. And by the way, nothing wrong with that. I think in some cases that was, in many cases, absolutely the right thing to do. But uh, it seems to me that there was not a principal understanding that the church has a unique, uh, a unique calling in this situation. The family as an institution had a unique calling. And because of the statist ideology, there was an inclination to collapse before that ideology and these other two institutions, as well as, by the way, other, their sheer sovereignty applies also in science, education, other areas. But these are the three institutional uh, aspects of sheer sovereignty. The other two basically collapsed uh, before um, the state, uh, state uh, statist ideology. Uh, that was, um, I believe most of you watching are reformed. If not, that's okay. You'll find out better in heaven. No, don't take me too seriously there. Um, but um, one aspect of the reformed faith I think that's vital is recognizing the lordship of Christ uh, in all of life. And um, I think that's something that sadly, even in some reform cases, certainly in the case of many conservative churches, did not happen. I could go on and on, but I've been talking and I should let Ardell now, correct my errors there. Oh, I have no, I have none to uh, correct there. Uh, I might just simply say, um, it seems to me that uh, <clears throat> we are in a situation, we find ourselves in a situation largely because uh, the the church in large measure has uh, shirked its responsibilities for a generation, uh, if not a couple of generations in, in, in uh, various regards. One, <clears throat> one of the responsibilities it seems of the pulpit is to instruct uh, Christians with regard to their role in relationship to government, but also government's relation, role in relationship to citizenry. Yes. And for example, if we go to uh, Paul's letter to the Romans chapter 13, I'm fully convinced that John Calvin is right when he makes the observation that Romans 13 has as much really to say to the um, governor as it does to the um, to the citizen or the subject as it was in those days. We are citizens, we're not subjects. And that uh, implicit, very implicitly embedded in Paul's instructions in Romans 13 are instructions concerning Christians and uh, ministers of the gospel uh, with regard to their responsibility to remind the governor that the governor is a minister of the creator and a minister to commend good and uh, to punish evil. I uh, have yet to receive any commendations from our governor uh, with regard to any of my behavior. Uh, and we, we, need to, uh, we need to return to uh, speaking about these things uh, from the pulpit. Uh, and an integral in Paul's letters also, for example, the very next chapter, 
where Paul speaks uh, in chapter 14 of, in spanning over into chapter 15 concerning uh, the Christian and um, what we would call the, uh, the very essential principle of Christian liberty. We have to remind ourselves and we have to remind our, our governing officials that uh, the very idea of uh, the American state was de derived in large measure out of, uh, out of a Western culture that was heavily and deeply influenced by, by the scriptures with regard to the, uh, the twin elements concerning the individual. The individual is uh, by, by ver the very design of, of the creator is free, a free agent, <clears throat> but also free agents have responsibility. And if we drive a wedge between free agency, freedom, and responsibility, you have neither. You cannot, you, cannot, you cannot take freedom away from individuals and expect them at the same time to be equally responsible. You cannot take responsibility away from individuals and at the same time expect that individuals are going to remain free. Freedom and responsibility are, um, are inseparable. And what we've seen, unfortunately, in, uh, in these eight weeks or uh, however long now we've been under house arrest is, uh, is the notion that uh, freedom can be, uh, can be taken away from the citizen and at the same time uh, demand them to be responsible. Um, that is, um, to do that is to treat us not as adults, but as children. And, uh, and in, any, in any home, in any responsible home, children do not attain unto um, majority uh, and, and have those responsibilities and freedoms um, until, until the parents have uh, properly reared them for adulthood and trained them in that pattern. But now that we're being, uh, we're being subjected to, to the things that we are being subjected to, uh, I would make the case that what we, have, what we are witnessing is we are witnessing an entire population in many states, not all states, but in many states, we're witnessing a population that is being treated as children. And, uh, and Christian ministers and Christians need to speak to these matters um, on the principles of the scriptures themselves from what Paul uh, has to say. So that churches should have been out in front leading the way and instead of being subjected by the governor to um to rules and regulations churches should have taken the uh the lead and um and acted fully responsibly um and uh, and of course many churches i think have done that but 
the church should not be looking to the governor for um, for the guidance and regulations on these matters. Churches themselves need to uh, act responsibly as individuals need to act responsibly. Um, yes, I will wear a mask uh, when I am patronizing a certain um, establishment that insists that I wear a mask when I am purchasing in their, in, in, within their domain. But that mask comes off as soon as I leave and I'm going to wear my mask uh, responsibly. I don't need a governor telling me when I need to do that or not. Uh, the, issue, the issue of a, a proprietorship or, a, or a, some business establishment has to do with property rights. And I have to respect the property rights of others. But what the governors and, and others are seeking to do is they're, tr they're seeking to trample all over our consciences. And that's an entirely different matter. And we need to recognize these things and we need to navigate our way through life, recognizing and understanding these things. But unfortunately, too many churches failed to prepare um, their, their membership to conduct themselves, how to conduct themselves in a world where these things are daily needing to be uh, negotiated. I think I'll, um, I think I'll turn it over to you now, Eric, and you can maybe, maybe pose some questions or uh, take things from there, or perhaps Andrew may have some responses to what I'm, I've said. Now that was, that was superb, Ardell. I'll just say briefly, I think one thing you said indicates that uh, we desperately need for churches to, uh, pastors, to articulate a theology of the state. I mean, what is a theology of the state that the Bible teaches? And it won't suffice simply to read the first seven verses of Romans 13. That's vital, of course, but that's only one aspect of it. Uh, and though we don't have time to go into the detail now, I believe what you'll discover if you look at the Word of God uh, overall taken in its totality is that the theology of the state includes the notion that the state is quite limited, much more limited than it is in our current uh, Western democracies. And it essentially is to uh, enforce the moral law of God appropriate to its sphere. We would use the term crimes to suppress crimes. Um, in harmony with, uh, uh, in line with uh, what the law of God says. The responsibility of the state in the Bible is not to provide for health, education, and welfare. The responsibility of the state is not to create a virtuous society. We have a name for states and regimes that attempt to create a virtuous society. They're called uh, dictatorships, totalitarian societies. Uh, it's the responsibility of the other two institutions uh, under the power of the Spirit, of course, and by the Word of God, the family and the church to inculcate virtue. Uh, the state is to um, protect the free exercise, not only of religion, uh, but of liberty. And that's why the New Testament tells us, pray, pray that you'll live a quiet and peaceful life. Perhaps you've heard Christians say, I'm praying that God will send great persecution and we'll all suffer terribly for the faith because then the church will be purified. Well, that sounds very pious, and it's very contra-biblical. 
the biblical prayer is that the civil magistrate should act in such a way as to protect the family and the church, and not just them also, but unbelievers that are in harmony with living according to the broad outline of the moral law of God, so they can go about their lives. Well, that's just one aspect of a theology of the state that is not really articulated in churches. And I think one reason that the church failed so miserably and so quickly in this case, and as Ardell said, there are a lot of exceptions, but one reason they failed, it's because they didn't previously have and had not really thought out a notion of the theology of the state. I would suggest finally, one reason for that is I think many of them would consider this not sufficiently spiritual. Now they would consider an, uh, an instruction in the doctrine of justification or the Trinity or how to uh, have a, the right kind of home life, spiritual, and they certainly are, and they're necessary. But we can't then say, well, the theology of the state is somehow less important than those. Actually, uh, the Bible has a great deal to say what we call politics today. It's just that we often read around it or we spiritualize it. I don't believe that's the right way to interpret the Word of God. I'll be done there and see if anybody wants to say anything else. If I may simply add this as a reason why we need to develop a theology of the state. Herbert Schlossberg in a book, a superb book from about close to 40 years ago now, in a book called Idols for Destruction, deals with uh, statism. And he makes a superb case there that uh, Christians need to d defeat that idol. And, uh, and, that, and the state becomes an idol precisely when, as Andrew has already uh, suggested, when we begin to look to the government as the solution. Um, the solution for what? Um, I think that Ronald Reagan expressed it exceedingly well when, uh, when he said one of the, some of the most horrifying words are when you hear somebody say, I'm from the government, I'm here to help. Uh, the government is not, uh, is not a savior. The government is not a deity. But we are really up against an entire political party that has, um, and, and there are people in both political parties who have elevated the state to that kind of level. And so that is a very crucial reason why we need to develop in our local churches, a theology of the state. Yeah. And um, as, as Eric, your, uh, your note along with the, um, the announcement indicated, the, uh, the, the greatest and best Christian creeds in the history of the church have addressed that. Yeah. They, address, they address the matter of government and how, how Christians ought to uh, conduct themselves in relation to the government. I, I noticed there's a question there. Um, I'm not trying to monopolize this. Uh, Joe Reed asked a question. Could you comment on the temptation the head of state has always had to proclaim himself God? Well, first, that's true. I mean, it goes all the way back to ancient Egypt, and we see, see in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, and then uh, most of you, if you've studied the history of the Roman, Roman Empire, know about the Caesars, uh, several of them proclaiming themselves God. Uh, yes, it's due uh, to an unhealthy and unbiblical consolidation of power uh, that the Bible will not permit. Um, when you look at God's idea of what a civil government should look like, uh, it would be helpful 
uh, to look at ancient Israel. I'm not suggesting that uh, sort of the old covenant be superimposed in the new covenant era. I'm simply saying if you look at this kind of model, you'll find a highly decentralized political model. In fact, uh, our early founders, some of them understood this. It's a decentralized model where most of the power is down below and it sort of moves upward in something like an appellate system. Certainly Moses and Joshua had that. Uh, there's no ideal human political system because we live in a fallen world, but that is much better uh, than the alternatives. Uh, when you have a consolidation of political power, which by the way, the U.S. founders abhorred. So they created a system with the Declaration of Independence and particularly with the Constitution of checks and balances everywhere. And why is? Because they were very suspicious of consolidations of power. Uh, sadly today, we have not had a deconsolidation of power in the last hundred years, but it's escalated in the last 25 or 30 with rare exception like under Reagan, but rather a reconsolidation of power in the federal government and in the state governments. Let me give one quick example and I'll be quiet. It seems to me that in my view, as far as what should, if there were to be a specific political response, and I'm not suggesting there should not have been to COVID-19, largely this should have been done on the level of counties, of counties. Uh, we do have county health departments for a reason. Uh, I suspect that as in California, there in Minnesota, that there are some very rural counties that are radically different with respect to the threat of this virus than uh, uh, St. Paul and uh, Minneapolis. <laughs> well, that might mean that they should have had a significantly different approach to this. Um, but when you're thinking is that people who live in urban areas and politicians, almost all of them do, whether it's Washington, D.C. or the state capitals, that what is right there should be right everywhere else that is a mark of a status mentality and the necessity of a consolidated political power. So uh, that was kind of a long-winded answer, but I hope that helps about the deification of the deification of the state. That's what happens when you consolidate political power. As Lord Acton, a Roman Catholic, said, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Why is the doctrine of sin or total depravity crucial? for this conversation about states and citizens. Maybe another question might be related is, what did our founding fathers understand about the human condition that, in, that informed the way that they viewed our governmental setup? I think that Andrew has alluded to that. The, they set up the government in, uh, in a system of checks and balances because Though not all of them were Christians, many of them weren't, they had the influences of Christian teaching and Christian doctrine um, on them from childhood so that they did in fact believe that humans are, um, they, they slant to the, toward the evil side, uh, however they may have put it. They, they, they didn't have necessarily a full developed doctrine of uh, humanity with regard to sin, but they did believe that humans are, um, the proclivity of the human is towards evil. And, and especially when you have a consolidation of powerful individuals, that becomes much more readily manifest than, than when you have, um, 
individuals who are um, who are much more uh, checked in in their power uh, power grabs. Yes. <clears throat> yes, I agree with that. And if you read the Federalist Papers, though, as Ardell said. Uh, they did not specifically use biblical or theological language. Clearly, they were operating within a Christian worldview, uh, which saw that uh, people are depraved and make mistakes and uh, make uh, stupid decisions, and they don't somehow magically lose this inclination of weakness, we would call it sin, when they become politicians. And therefore, precisely because they're in a position of power and a position to do great damage, precisely because of that, uh, they're they have to be severely chained, chained by laws, chained by constitutions, chained by uh, popular voting, chained by popular voting and other things. So uh, because of that, the, the American system of government uh, and the, the uh, independence of the United States of America, the, the philosophical premise is radically different from that of the French Revolution, which is the first modern secular revolution in history. And by the way, every a secular revolution since has been indebted uh, directly or indirectly to the French Revolution. Uh, the American, I don't even like the term American Revolution. I'd rather use war for independence um, because I think it's a better description. On entirely different and largely Christian premises. And it's basically because of what you asked, Eric, about their view of human nature. I mean, one's view of human nature will dramatically impact his view of politics. That's very clear. Here's a question that came in from someone named Robert Dahlberg, who we know. Um, what do you see the church? What do you see the church be doing in this moment re with regard to government restrictions on church meetings? How do we? Um, how do? What do we do in light of the overreach based on the shifting data and no data, and the allowing of malls to open and abortion clinics, but not churches? Hey, can I can I piggyback on that question too? Sure. The, um, the question that I had was, so that's, that's, that's the question about the church. Um, you'd mentioned that the church has abdicated its sphere of sovereignty, and that gets to Bob's question. My question was, um, how do you see that the family has abdicated its sphere of sovereignty, and what, what would you, um, how would how would you advise or how would you paint a picture of what it looks like for families to protect uh, their uh, sphere of, of sovereignty? I don't know if uh, Ardell, I've been talking a lot. You want Ardell to take a stab at that? It doesn't matter either way. Huh. Um. <clears throat> Yeah, we have nothing to fear but sphere itself. <laughs> um, in, the, in terms of the sphere of the family and the sphere of the church. Um, well, I think that, uh, I think that uh, churches, for example, um, <clears throat> the church leadership in particular should not uh, be petitioning the governor. I think that the church should be suing the governor. Mm -hmm. Peti to petition the governor is to, is to take the posture of a subject 
rather than a citizenry. And the same thing is true for the family. I, I do not participate in signing petitions for the governor at this time. I think that there should be a class actions lawsuit from yeah. citizenry instead. Yes. Because we, we are to use our rights as citizens. Paul did. Paul, Paul very clearly did. He refused once he was imprisoned. He was, he refused to allow himself to be treated um, as though he were not a citizen and to be released in secret. Instead, he insisted that those officials who, who arrested him in a public kind of way should uh, release him in a public kind of way. And Christians as individuals and Christians as members of churches should not treat the governor as though the governor were the king, as though the governor were a law unto himself. The governor is subject to the law of the land. And every state, certainly the state of Minnesota has uh, essentially reiterates the, um, the, the rights in, that we have in the um, Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments. Minnesota has the, same, has the same statements essentially as the first amendment and the right to assemble and the right to redress grievances and the freedom of speech and so forth. So I would say citizens and um, churches ought to never allow themselves to be treated as subjects, but to use the, uh, use the legal uh, route to address their grievances and, um, and to, and to um, put some pressure on uh, the governor who is, who is out, outside of the bounds. We are not, by doing what we are doing, we are not um, engaged in civil disobedience. That's right. The governor is the one who is engaged in disobeying right. the Constitution. Right. So, so when I go out in public and refuse to wear a mask, where there's no, where there's no proprietor demanding that I wear a mask, who has property rights, if 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 it's a matter of property rights, I will wear a mask. But if it's not an issue of property rights. If I'm in the public public arena, I'm not I'm not engaged in civil disobedience. I am engaged in lawful obedience to the law, and the governor himself has to back off from his disobedience to the Constitution. And I think that that's uh, that's true in half the states at least. Uh, Tammy asked a question. Um, I'm going to just mention two books. What are some scholarly Books that develop a biblical theology of state and politics. The first one I want to mention is one that uh, um, Ardell's comment really peaked back into my mind, and that is Samuel Rutherford's wonderful book, Lex Rex. Uh, it basically means in Latin, the law and the prince. And the point he's making there is that contrary to the divine right of kings, the biblical idea, and of course he is a good Calvinist, so we understood that even kings uh, are subject to the law of God. Uh, it's an outstanding argument. It's a very old argument. Um, it's even older than the 17th, uh, 16th century. It's as old as the Bible. 
that uh, every politician should be governed by the law of God. And that's true even of non-believers. They're responsible to enforce the moral law of God appropriate to their sphere. But I'd also uh, mention a wonderful book. If you've not read uh, Kuyper's Lectures on Calvinism, it doesn't all lead with, it doesn't all deal with politics, but the chapter on the state is a wonderful short chapter. Uh, It's it's, uh, remarkable and I think most of you watching would consider yourselves at least broadly reformed or Calvinistic in some sense. This is a remarkable blind spot in much of uh, modern American Calvinism. I mean, they understand the five points of Calvinism. Uh, they'll uh, harangue about justification by faith alone. And of course, that's vital. Uh, and about regeneration. And he even uh, can talk about infralapsarianism and superlapsarianism and sublapsarianism. But when it comes to a Christian approach uh, to politics uh, and what that meant in the Reformed tradition, there's a strange silence, it's a deafening silence. And that very silence has caused, uh, in my view, has caused a lot of the problems that we have today, a lack of, but those are two that I would mention off the top of my head, Lex Rex and then uh, Lectures on Calvinism by Kuiper, Lex Rex by Samuel Rutherford. Say, Ardell, you, um, I'm going to, let me know if I understood you correctly. Um, you'd said Romans 13 has as much to say to the governor as it has to the governed. Um, therefore, um, the pulpit needs to proclaim God's word to the governor. Is that accurate? Yes, I would okay. say so. Yes. Okay. So, uh, there is a, a perennial debate. Um, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna put on a devil's advocate hat. Well, not what about this? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying it's not tinfoil. Uh, what about the separation of church and state? Are you saying that Christian pastors? should be in the business of preaching the law to pagans, pagan governors in this, in this sense. Christian pastors should be preaching the word of God in such a way that it addresses believer and unbeliever alike, regardless of rank. And, uh, and when you come to passages such as this in Romans 13, it is, um, it is speaking to, I mean, Paul is speaking to Caesar <clears throat> as much as he is speaking to the Roman yes. uh, believers in, uh, in the church in Rome. I mean, we have to, we have to keep in mind um, that Paul wrote this to the very seat of government. He wrote this letter to the very seat of government. And, um, and he almost certainly sent it by way of a woman named Phoebe. We meet her in chapter 16, where Paul introduces her. And, and uh, so she is his courier. And, uh, <clears throat> and he is speaking here about two responsibilities, that, is, that of the citizen, but also of the, um, of the governor. And, and so... If, if his letter falls into the hands of uh, interrogators who, um, 
who arrest Phoebe along the way, uh, they're going to be rebuked by chapter 13 as, as executors of the governing uh, officials, a governing official uh, and uh, the law. Um, they're going to be rebuked by what Paul has to say because he's insisting that they are to, the governor is to commend those who do good and, uh, and to punish those who do evil. Well, how is it evil to be a courier of a letter to a church in Rome? Uh, so Paul, Paul understood very well the contingencies that his letter might be subjected to. And, and so when he writes to the Romans, he's writing to the, very, to the Christians who are in the very seat of this government. But he's also writing in such a way that the governor, the, the Caesar himself, if he should ever see this, that he would um, that he would understand his role, and of course later on we know that Paul is ministering in his house arrest in Rome. He's ministering to people in the house of Caesar. So Paul didn't back away from uh, admonishing um, governors on concerning their role. They they have a responsibility and that responsibility is at the, at the level of government and citizens, the kind, of, the kind of responsibility that husbands are to have with their wives. Paul does not demand f from, from wives absolute submission to their husbands, regardless how they conduct themselves. We would be, we would be seriously misreading uh, Ephesians 5 if we read it that way. Paul is admon admonishing wives and husbands how they are to conduct themselves. And, there, and there's what we might call kind of an, ideal, uh, an idealized uh, family there of a husband and a wife. And the husband is to be a godly man who's tender and loving to his wife. And to, and to such a man, a wife is not going to have any grand difficulty in submitting to her, submitting herself. And the same thing is true in, at the level of government and citizenry. Governors who like, if I may, if I may hold her up, I don't know what her spiritual condition is, but Christy Noam from South Dakota, I mean, she's an honorable governor. She understands that citizens are free agents and they are responsible free agents. And that is to be highly commended. Christians in South Dakota ought to be commending their governor for her proper behavior. And there are other governors as well that ought to be commended. Very unlike the governor that we have here in Minnesota. Um, so I trust that that gets to, your, uh, get to your, gets to your question there, Joe. May I come back to you if you have something more? Sure, sure. Well, I'll, I'll punt over to, to Doc there. What do you think? Uh, I'll distill the question a little, a little further. Um, what, what could we expect from a pagan government? You want me to answer that? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh, good question. Uh, because Paul was, as Ardell pointed out there, that was very well argued theologically, very impressive. Uh, this certainly was a pagan government. <laughs> But, and he was 
requiring submission in general, as Christians always should be submissive to this order. But there is a point here that is often glossed over, and that is Paul uses the word, uh, he's speaking there about the civil government who is a terror to the evil and evil works and committing the good. But we would uh, ask the three-word question, by what standard? What is evil and what is good? Paul would never have acknowledged that it was the responsibility of the civil government to determine what is evil and what is good. Now, we use today terms, more Kantian terms, like objective and subjective standards. Well, for Paul, this, these were all objective standards, and these were, of course, according to God's revelation. Either God's written revelation, or, that's, or the basis of that written revelation, he says in Romans 1, written in the human heart, which in my view is not the same thing as so-called natural law or natural theology. But the point being that Paul stressed the importance of objective standards. So his whole point is that even uh, pagan emperors who have the uh, law of God written in their heart are required by God to enforce that uh, moral law of God. Now, if we ask ourselves the question, well, how is it that pagans are able to do that apart from the Spirit of God easy. Another aspect of the Reformed faith is God's common grace. Um, though there's not so much a common, a spirit, there's not a common spiritual condition or epistemology. Because of God's common grace, even unbelievers, God holds them in check. And even pagan rulers can uh, operate in the broad sphere of God's moral law and suppressing murder and rape and kidnapping and theft mm. uh, and sexual perversion and all these other things. Uh, the pagan emperor certainly can can do that, and that's what Paul is referring to, in my view. I think that that's an excellent segue uh, question. I had Ardell brought up uh, Herbert Schlossberg's Idols for Destruction, and not that any of you care about my recommendation, but that is a phenomenal book. It was it was a huge huge piece of of uh, my spiritual development as well. Um, and I, Joe, I'm will you open... tape that? Will you tape that in when you get a chance? I can't even pronounce what you just said. <laughs> I'll, I'll, do, I'll, I'll do it thank you Great, thanks, thanks. Um, uh, it, one, one of the greatest takeaways I, I, I had from that book was um, and I'm open to correction but it's that essentially that, that Yahweh has not fundamentally changed how he deals with nations Would you, could Ardell or, or Doc could you guys either confirm or correct me on that would, well, would, uh, go ahead, Ardell. Would, would, would you repeat the question sure. um, slightly, please? So um, I'm, I'm going to be embarrassed here. I, I, I don't have references, but I know one or some of the minor prophets have prophecies for neighboring nations, right? So some of the, some of the Old Testament prophets had a prophecy from God to Nineveh or... Um, to Moab, right? These were people who were not Christian or not, sorry, <laughs> covenantal slip there. Um, these were people who were not God's people. So, th so Yahweh judged nations that were not his nation. And if I took away from Schlossberg, what he was saying was God has not fundamentally changed how he deals with nations in, in, in terms of his judgment of nations, in terms of his raising up and his bringing down, is that, would that be a, 
at least one of Schlossberg's points. So I have that kind of right. Yeah, I think so. And I uh, mentioned, I'm sure Ardell has something to say there, but I would, there are a number of places in the Bible where that's clear, but perhaps no place as remarkably clear as just sit down and read, let's say the first 20 chapters of Isaiah. So here Isaiah is coming along in the first, I think it's 11 or 12, 13 chapters, and he is biblically haranguing uh, Israel and then sometimes Judah. And then almost, almost without catching a breath, he's, he's speaking about their apostasy, they're turning away from the living God, how they're mistreating one another, they're oppressing one another. And then, and then he turns right around to the nation surrounding Israel and uses some of the same language to indict them for the very same sin. So clearly he seems to be holding them to the same objective standard as he is Israel. So to the argument that, well, the moral law of God was only designed, including the civil law, uh, was only designed for Israel, and we just don't need to worry about the pagan nations. I mean, pagans will be pagans. Boys will be boys, you know, and we don't need to worry about them. That's certainly not the approach of Isaiah and the other prophets. And I would mention one more thing, and I'll be done on this point, not our Dell speaker, whoever wants to. Depending on how you interpret the book of Revelation, and I believe that a large part of it is spoken to the uh, pagan Roman Empire as well as to apostate Judaism. But it's not just the Old Testament. The New Testament also addresses uh, apostate nations and God's judgment on them. So uh, certainly God's dealing with nations has not changed from how it is in the Old Testament. God's law applies to individuals. It applies to families. It applies to businesses. It applies to what we call science. Uh, it applies to churches and it applies to the nations. I mean, God's law is a, God's moral law is a global phenomenon applied to all people everywhere. Joe Banks, you want to hit a couple of those questions that were just sent there? Again, I'm going to have to kick over to you. I, I'm going off my phone oh, here. Sure. Yeah, I, I got it. I can't really I see them. Yeah. Here's one that came, there's two more questions that came in there related to each other and they're more in the, um, maybe we'll say that the practical side of application one, um, how do we convey this to a fellow Christian who believes that Romans 13 leaves no room for the church to disobey government? A um, couple examples, we've seen um, a lot of this talk coming even out of traditionally reformed circles in the last couple weeks. Um, some of them citing Westminster, um, uh, some of them just more of kind of a broad evangelical, but how do we how do we explain that to Christians in their conscience that are thinking right now that, like, so for example, our church that met this morning is sinning against God and the government by meeting this morning in defiance of what we believe is his un, unjust order? I would probably reiterate some of what I said earlier, and that would be that our responsibility as Christians, and particularly as ministers of the gospel, and as leaders of the church, our responsibility is to obey uh, our governors, wherein they are to be obeyed. But when they step outside of propriety itself, who is um, who's disobeying the law? Right. We, we ought not to presume that because your church met this, this morning on this Lord's Day, 
uh, as a congregation that you somehow were in violation of the law of the land. Uh, you're not. Uh, you may be you may be testing the governor's edicts, but to test the governor's edicts is not the same as violating the law. And it is heartening to all of us, at least it's heartening to me, to see that the lower the lesser magistrates in uh, counties, uh, for example, in Michigan, there are uh, several sheriffs. They are the lesser magistrates in, in Michigan. They're, they're over counties. They are not in, they're not going to enforce Governor Whitmer's uh, edicts. And that is right. They are, yeah. not in, they are not in violation of the law. Yeah. She's in violation of the law and their action is precisely the action that's necessary to call attention to the fact that she's the lawless one, not they. And so we need to, we need to adopt the same kind of posture. It doesn't mean that you go out and, um, and run roughshod over the law, you don't. What you do is you live your normal, upright, godly life. Uh, and as I, as I was hinting at much earlier, we are in this situation today because the church has failed miserably in, in a variety of ways. And one of the main major ways is we have not been salt and light to this culture. We've, we've, we've lost our saltiness to this culture so that the culture has become overrun by godlessness and uh, and godlessness is uh, is at work in the hearts of our governors, and and thus the church is now. Well, let's just face it: the church is suffering divine judgment. Um, and I'm not specific, specifically saying for this or for that, but I think for our failures to speak to. Um, the sins of this culture and this, of this society, and uh, and we have failed in large measures to to penetrate the culture as salt and transform the culture into uh, and and preserve what was one in uh, in the preaching and proclamation of the gospel by earlier generations. How is it that pagan Europe? became largely Christian. It's only through the proclamation of the gospel. It didn't come by, it didn't come by wars. It came by the proclamation of the gospel. How is it that the United States of America was what it once was? It's, it came because it, because it largely came by a way of uh, transfer from Europe. And, and for generations, this nation has been in large measure what we'd call, well, we'd, we'd simply speak of it as Christendom. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that every, everybody in the nation's a Christian, but even those who are not Christians have been deeply influenced by, by Christian doctrine and teaching. And so we've somehow forfeited our role and thus we now find ourselves where we do. And so we Christians who, um, who are, who are law-abiding citizens are being looked upon by fellow Christians as lawbreakers? 
come on, give me a break. We're not lawbreakers. We are, we are lawful citizens who are pushing back against those who would impose their wills on us and not only restrict our freedom, but make us subjects and not responsible citizens. Here's a couple more questions. Um, more practically speaking, can you address the role fear is playing in the segment of the populace crying out for tyranny? Um, and second, how ought to a pastor minister to fearful people retreating to Romans 13? Um, those who through fear of death were subjects to lifelong slavery, Hebrews 2.15. Yeah, that's a vital question. Um, I've written a little bit on that. I think if you'll do a study of the Word of God, you'll find something very fascinating about fear. Um, unless he is sending it to unbelieving people at war with his own people or his own people who are apostate, God does not instigate fear. That one text is very powerful, Hebrews 2.15. It says there's a sort of ellipsis, those who through fear uh, of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The text says, uh, by the devil or by Satan. Satan is the enslaver, and he uses fear to do that. I would go so far as to say that if we are uh, in harmony with God and his word, and we are living in fear, we are living in sin. And this is true during time of coronavirus or any other. So um, if you think about it, and I'm going somewhere else with this, I think it's vitally important, even if a little controversial. Um, Whenever you preach to people in a congregation and they're overcome with fear, they really are overcome with a, a satanic temptation and have succumbed to that temptation. And when you look at the 24-7 mainstream media, constantly filled with pessimism, constantly filled with the worst case scenario, constantly filled with bad news, I would say that they're not merely wrong. I would suggest that that is diabolical. Mm. I want to make another point here. I wrote something on this. Those of you watching can check on the website, The Virus and the Powers. Uh, this is something that we as Reformed people often don't take much uh, account of because we see the, the weirdness and the goofiness of a lot of charismatic uh, and Pentecostal theology, and they see a devil behind you know, every bush, and every evil they do is a result of Satan. That isn't true. But because of that, I think we often overreact. We talked about a theology of the state, but Paul most definitely has a theology of the principalities and the powers. And Ardell's, the, of course, the uh, exegete and biblical theologian here. But however you interpret that, there is a very odd association uh, between these powers and political rulers. It seems as though that Satan loves to commandeer, and this starts in the Old Testament, by the way, in the book of Daniel, loves to commandeer political rulers because they're in a position to do great damage. How does, the, how does the thief come? To kill and to destroy and to steal. That's referring to Satan himself. Well, that's what he's done in this virus. He's killed and he's destroyed and he's, dis and he's stolen. So the point I'm making is it's not just politicians. I believe that there, and by the way, Luther believed this also, that there is a satanic impulse behind this and also a satanic impulse behind this lockdown to dehumanize people. That also is a mark of Satan, to dehumanize and depersonalize. So having said that, to oppose the spirit of fear is really to oppose the spirit of Satan. Now, I'm sorry if I uh, whacked a little Pentecostal there, but I do believe 
that that is just good biblical and Pauline theology. And so we need to stand up strongly against this. Uh, is presumption a sin? Of course. The Old Testament makes that clear. Should we take necessary precautions, washing our hands and being careful about close contact? Of course, that's wise. But living in a spirit of fear, that I suggest is diabolical. I would agree with uh, all that Andrew has said there. I also have written some things on fear not too long ago, just uh, I think a week ago or so, I wrote something on uh, my Facebook page about that in response to a um, philosopher, a Christian philosopher, who, uh, who is admonishing people, be afraid, be very afraid. Mm. Um, I say no. What we, have to, what we have to recognize is that <clears throat> the term, the word that is translated fear in, uh, in, the New Test in our English New Testaments has, has a range of uh, senses yes. within the Greek New Testament. <clears throat> our one word fear is quite inadequate to express the concepts that are involved. For example, uh, Eric, you mentioned uh, the passage from Romans 13, um, where, where Paul is saying this, do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? I would, uh, I would translate that instead a little, with something stronger, because fear is, fear is both admonished and fear is uh, repudiated or rejected in the scriptures. Fear of God is the beginning, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But we have to understand what, what is going on here. There's a proper kind of fear and there's an improper kind of fear. Mm -hmm. um, and and what, uh, what Paul is talking about here is terror. The terror of the authority who has the sword. And, and the, point that, the point he's making is he doesn't have the sword for nothing which of course is Paul's way of saying capital punishment is, uh, is a proper function of the governing authority for those who do evil. And so, so would you, would you be free of the terror of the authority? Well, then do what is right and you will be commended. And that is, as uh, in, in response to a question that Joe asked earlier, that is precisely where the, the implications are cutting both ways, to the citizen, but also to the governor. The governor has an obligation to commend those who do good. And a, and a governor who is punishing people who do good is, uh, is an evil governor and ought to be removed yes. so fear fear is something that we need to understand and so for example let me just illustrate the difference between fear and terror any child who's going to grow up and be godly and become godly must fear one's father if if a child does not fear one's father that child is not growing in the graces of the gospel. And there's a vast difference between that, which of course is exactly what Paul exhorts in Ephesians uh, 6, as well as Colossians 4, for children. 
that is vastly different from terror or fright. A child who is, a child who is um, subject to an abusive father is terrorized. And, and terror, being terrorized is an altogether different thing from a godly, holy, respectful, reverent fear. And we need to, we need to understand these things. And so, so we, cannot, we cannot simply treat the Bible in a flat kind of way. And every time we see the word fear, it means exactly the same thing. It doesn't. It can't. The context is what gives to it a proper sense. And we need to read it in light of that. Just a quick rabbit trail off of what you just said, Ardell. It's a great admonition to fathers to be men who are fearful or not, who, who are able to be feared. Too many men are too nice and too many men are, are too weak uh, so that children know that I have nothing to fear from this man. <laughs> yes. Um, it's, it's exactly what has to go with, a, with somebody who's going to stand in front of other people and teach them. When I go to the classroom and I do not command respect, I'm a failure. And, that, and in order to command respect, that is what we're speaking about. That is, there has to be a proper fear of the fear toward the professor in order for proper learning to take place. The same thing is true with elders. You, you have to, in a church, you have to have a proper fear toward the elders. But we also need to, we also need to distinguish between two kinds of, these two kinds of fear as well this way. A fear to fail is a godly fear. A fear that I will fail is an ungodly fear. Yeah. A fear to fail is the kind of fear that you can have with full confidence and assurance in your heart. A fear that you will fail is the kind of fear that is governing an individual who has no confidence before the Lord and, and, and has no assurance whatsoever that when I go to the Lord, he's going to hear me, he's going to, he's going to answer me. And, and it, in other words, that is, that is a complete lack of assurance and confidence before the Lord. And that makes for a pathetic and miserable life as a Christian. And unfortunately, there are many Christians who have been subjected to that because, because ministers failed to distinguish a proper kind of fear and an unholy fear, a fear to fail and a fear that I will fail. I mean, it's as, it's as, it's as um, down home as getting in the car and driving. If, you, if any of you are getting in a car and drive on the highway and, you are a, and you're fearful that you're going to crash, get off the highway. I don't ever want to be on the highway with you. But I do want to be on the highway with people who fear to crash. And there's a vast difference between those two things. In, in how we conduct our lives, in everyday matters. 
what here's a question i'm trying to get to the ones that people are typing in here what is the role of the state in the realm of social justice given the current debate within evangelicalism on the topic well i mean ardell and i uh, probably ian too have written on that i'll just take a quick uh, stab at that. The problem isn't the expression social justice per se. I mean, as Thomas Sowell once said, all justice is social. If you were alone on a desert island, you wouldn't need justice, right? Uh, but in the Bible, uh, the term justice is uh, translated justice is essentially and often interchangeably righteousness. So we're really talking about social righteousness. But then we ask ourselves, well, what is that? And that is conformity to the law of God. Torah in the Old Testament, Numas in the New Testament, it's, it's, it's conformity to the law of God. But of course, the proponents of what is today called social justice are almost all leftists, and they would be uh, abhorred at the notion that they would have to be bound by the law of God on a number of issues, economics, but particularly sexual ethics. Um, so if anything, my view is that uh, it's been a failure of the church to preach biblical righteousness, social justice, righteousness, that has created this vacuum for a lot of this leftism. And here I have to speak, and I don't, this is not true of anybody here, certainly, but of my pietistic brothers and sisters, they're often so opposed to addressing any issue outside the church that uh, younger people grow up in the church and they hear all this stuff about, well, what about racial justice and, quote, environmental justice and um, gender justice and all of this, and they're attracted to that, uh, largely, or I should say at least possibly, because the church hasn't addressed the issue of what does the Word of God say on these issues? What is God's will on all of these issues? And his inscripturated propositional revelation. And therefore, they're very susceptible to leftist proponents of social justice. Here's another question. Is the Constitution, um, is the Constitution, I, I presume it's the United States of America, Bob, Bob Dolber, you can uh, reassert this one if you want. Is that the supreme law or the supreme human law that is? Yeah, I was just reiterating there. I think what uh, I think what Ardell was uh, was saying, and that we we don't look ultimately to the governor uh, as supreme, uh, but in the way our, our system is, we look to the Constitution as the the supreme human law. Uh, and when the governor violates that Constitution, then he he's the one who's disobedient. Yeah. That's right. That's, and that's also why we have uh, a judicial system and a Supreme Court to interpret the Constitution. Sadly, over the last 50 years, there's been an acceleration toward turning the Constitution into a wax nose and turning it into a legislative document. Of course, the Constitution is not a legislative document. Um, it's basically designed to judge everything else. And you're exactly right. The, uh, the Constitution, humanly speaking, is the foundational law of, uh, of the land, and it stands above. And that's why every governor, every president puts his hand on the Bible uh, and also swears uh, fidelity to the Constitution. And then 90% uh, of them proceed in the first few days to violate their, violate their oath by breaking the Constitution. But that's why 
the Constitution is a procedural document. It's not so much a substantive document, uh, but it's a vital document uh, maintaining this sort of Christian ethos. It's, 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 it's not possible to have developed the apostasy we have in our nation apart from shoving the Constitution aside. And that's why it had to be shoved aside to allow for the sort of socio-political apostasy we have today. Yes, I would, um, I would agree with Andrew on that. And I would, make, I would make this observation as well. It is not accidental that in the church, the authority of scripture has been pushed aside at the same time that in the country or in the nation, the constitution has been pushed aside. Right. When, right. When, when a culture pushes aside its own canons, the, uh, the, it becomes a canon unto itself. And, and that's exactly what's going on in churches and in, uh, <clears throat> and in the government. Uh, and there's a lot more we could tease out of that, but um, I, think it's, I think it's a very important parallel to, to observe. Is there ever a time or circumstance that the church should not meet? Yeah, that's a good question, Ian. I've been pondering that since I saw it. I've given that a lot of thought, as I bet you have too. Uh, I don't think we can answer that until we really consider what the church really is. I mean, the New Testament, the church is a translation of ecclesia. It's not a theological term. It's just an ancient Greek term with the city-states referring to a community, a group of citizens, full citizens that would meet and transact business. Um, some would believe that the term church is not the best translation of that. I mean, if you read Tyndale's New Testament, he translated, I think, congregation or assembly. I think it was congregation. I will build my congregation we would see in Matthew chapter 16. But the key here is that the ecclesia is an assembly. And um, the notion that uh, you could have a disassembled ecclesia is a contradiction of terms. I think our language betrays us sometimes, and what evangelicals are well-meaning, they'll say things like this, wherever we are, the church is the church. I even see, saw, saw some people on Facebook saying, it doesn't matter that the church, this is a good thing that the church doesn't meet because now we can go out and the church can be the church. Another example of one of those sort of um, syrupy pieties that uh, are not biblical at all. And now certainly we should act as Christians and act as church going people and people faithful to the church when we're not at the assembly. But the notion of a disassembled church undermines the notion of the church. I mean, when Paul wrote his letters, his view was not, well, all of you make copies of this and sort of pass them around. When you meet in the assembly, read it. Read it to the church at Laodicea, and so on. So in answer to your question, Ian, I would say that in very unusual situations, I mean severe plagues, earthquakes, and of course being overrun uh, by foreign armies in a church, in those cases the church can't meet, or there may be extreme cases when the church temporarily cannot meet. But my view, and I'm willing to be corrected, of course, but is that the notion the church will just sort of... Um, with an open-ended temporary decision, say, we're just not going to meet until we're absolutely certain that this thing is all taken care of, because far be it from us to expose anybody to a, a virus, which is overall a mild virus anyway. To me, it seems that runs flat in the face, not just of biblical evidence, but the very nature of what it means to be the church. I mean, for the church to be the church, the church must assemble. That's what the ecclesia is, is it is an assembly. How about this? From again, from Robert Dahlberg, um, 
and this would be an interesting one, Andrew, for you to tease out a little bit. Has radical two-kingdom theology also led some to allow state to run over to run rampant over liberties and truth? Yeah, I think there's no question about that. There was a fascinating article written in a journal that uh, Ardell knows about, and Ian, the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society, written by a historian, I think, in the 80s. And uh, he makes the point that uh, in uh, the Weimar Republic, in uh, the early years of uh, Nazi Germany, it was precisely the uh, German Lutheran, some Reformed, but mostly Lutheran commitment to this two-kingdom theology that allowed the Protestants, for the most part, to collapse uh, before Nazi Germany, because their view was basically, we are, are the truth of God, the more, the, the, Christianity applies within the four walls here, but God governs outside the church by a completely different standard. We put that entirely in the hands of the civil magistrate. That's not our concern. Uh, while the Reformed view would be we're required by God to declare the truth of the Word of God to the civil magistrate, that wasn't their view at all. Their view is let them do their work and we will do our work. Having said that, then, I would suggest radical two-kingdom theology, wherever it goes historically, wherever it goes, tends to open the way for uh, state overreach. And, and that's not just uh, my saying so. I think that's, if you study it historically, that's an empirical observation. So again, real quick, um, few of us may be familiar with two kingdoms. Um, it's real prevalent in, you said Lutheran and then some reform circles too, right? What, again, just really highlight, will you highlight again? Because I think it's probably indirectly relevant in a lot of our lives when we hear statements like the church should never preach politics. Yeah. Right? Yeah, well, two kingdom theology, not so much Luther, uh, but certainly Lutherans and uh, some reformed is the view that God sort of has two kingdoms, the kingdom of special revelation uh, that it's God's word specifically in Jesus Christ in the church, but outside the church, he operates by the civil magistrate, and that has a separate standard, and that standard is not his revelation, certainly not his biblical revelation, and maybe in a tangential sense, his natural revelation, but even there, that's not really the point. It's sort of an, it's an area of commonality. It's an area where we can just all agree, all, not Christian and non-Christian can all just sort of get together and agree on what would be okay outside the church. Uh, the st what the standards would be outside the church and in politics, for example. Well, that, I think, runs flatly contrary to what the, what the Bible teaches. Unbelievers are going to have a tendency to twist uh, reality and twist the Word of God, and that's why you have to have the same standard. Applied in different ways, of course, the standard of the Word of God applies in a different way in the church than it does in the state, but nonetheless, it's the same standard. So, Beware of anybody who tells you, well, the Word of God is for the church, but anybody who wants to speak of the Word of God in culture, they're sort of a theocrat. Uh, they're sort of like the Taliban, which is just totally false. Uh, God has one standard, and that's uh, objective propositional standard, and that standard is His Word. And there is no other standard. And uh, everything in life should be conformed to that standard, appropriate to its sphere, of course. So then a, a question would be, here would be an ethical one for you, Ardell and Andrew. Um, to a certain strange, in a strange sort of way, at least, and I'll speak for Northern Minnesota, we, um, both the business community and the church community are running very parallel courses right now in our concerns over government overreach. To what extent can the church or how can us in the church um, partner up with, let's say, a businesses in their um, real view that this government shutdown of all these businesses is also unconstitutional. 
I think Ardell should handle that one. <laughs> I think the question was so profound, guys, or it didn't make any sense. One of the two things. Well, the interest, the interests of the church have a parallel with the interest of, um, of a businessman. And, um, and if the church is not sympathetic with the concerns of the businessman who's been shut down uh, by, uh, by edicts from governors, the church needs to uh, reassess itself uh, because the church is, the, 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 the members of a church are participants in uh, the same commerce. And, and so we have interests that are running parallel to the interests of, uh, of the grocer or of the, uh, of the florist or of uh, the, the veterinarian uh, who has his own shop or her shop. We have, we have parallel interests and concerns. And so it may very well be that, um, that individuals who are proprietors of businesses participate in a class action suit against, uh, against a governor and along with churches. And, uh, and, each, and each can lay out within, their, within that suit their own, uh, their own grievances. Um, and, and, and at the same time, I don't think that there's any reason why churches couldn't themselves gather together and, um, and, and uh, conduct a, a class action lawsuit against the governor as well. But, it, but we, we need to uh, be, we need to be su supporting um, the rights of um, business personnel Yes. to maintain and to operate their businesses. I mean, after all, doesn't Paul say, he who will not work must not eat? I mean, if that, is, if that isn't a very important foundational principle on which uh, we, we operate in a world with regard to commerce and economics, what, what more do we need? These people need to have, uh, they need to have their rights defended and uh, and who better to do that than uh, than Christians and Christian ministers? Eric, could I jump in and say one thing, Ardell? That was sure. so good. I, I would go so far as to say that for the state to close businesses is really to clearly and explicitly violate the Word of God, including the the, the Pauline text that uh, Ardell invoked, but also in the creational norm that man is called yes. to work and cultivate. The world for the glory of God. Some call it the cultural mandate. Uh, if there had never been a fall, there still would have been work in the world. Not, of course, with the difficulties of the curse, but still would have been work. So it is dehumanizing and a violation of the clear revelation of God to tell somebody you cannot work. Um, I, I um, don't hesitate to say it that starkly. I'm sad that some people don't, but this shows the evil involved in, a, in, in demanding people refrain from doing what God commanded that they do, and that is work for a living and provide for their own. I hardly agree. The, the, question, the question there uh, by Stephanie, or the comment there by Stephanie, raises the prospect of, um, 
of a of of a of churches <laughs> participating in uh, a lawsuit with uh, with the owner of a bar. Uh, that may seem like strange bedfellows, but of course, bars these days are um, are also in large measure uh, food uh, restaurants, um, and 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 of course that that may raise some real questions about uh, per, about the joint participation. But at the same time, doesn't the bar owner uh, have to feed his family? Yes, that's right. Can you address? Um, and I think Kuiper used to address this, uh, Andrew or, or Ardell. Um, is there the distinction between individual Christians who are members of a church and the church ecclesia body? When we say churches join a lawsuit, would you say the church, um, my church, say Lifespring, or do we say individual members of the church? It, it, should there be a distinction between there when we're considering our role and culture in this? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, there certainly is a distinction. But um, I don't disagree with Ardell at all. I think the Church of Jesus Christ uh, has its own independent calling as a body that is uh, related to, but separate one, separate from that of individuals. So for the church to itself join a lawsuit, uh, for a church itself to endorse a political candidate, which I believe, which happened historically in the U.S. for many years and will happen again uh, by God's grace, for the church itself to take a stand on these issues. And not to say, well, we're not really going to address political issues in the pulpit, but we will allow our members privately on their own to address these issues. Uh, I'm sorry, but that's a cop-out. Uh, the church as a body has its own independent responsibility to make these decisions. And if I may say so, not outsource everything to individual Christians. Yeah, a few years ago in Minnesota, I think it's about seven years ago now, there was a um, an amendment that came up, and we called it basically, for lack of for lack of greater specificity, the uh, marriage amendment. Uh, and the the amendment came up, and it was going to and it, and the amendment stated specifically what a uh, what constituted a marriage. Sadly, um, churches, many churches, prominent churches, uh, stood aloof from that. And uh, and ministers didn't uh, didn't participate, and uh, I know that many many outstate churches, um, because I was in contact with many of them in, in throughout the throughout the uh, more rural areas of Minnesota, they were looking specifically to certain metropolitan churches to take leadership, and uh, and the, the metropolitan churches failed to take that leadership. Well, there was an example of a miserable failure, and don't you know, as soon as, um, as, soon as the uh, Democrat Party got in power in January, that was the very first thing that they, uh, that they ran through, through uh, the, the House and Senate in Minnesota, a, uh, an amendment that made it legal, legalized um, same-sex mirage as Doug Wilson calls it so so the church um, the church as a unit uh, not just members is vital to the uh, 
to these kinds of things in society. Individuals, individual members can have voices, but, but when, when the elders of churches fail to speak on these kinds of things, that's a, that's a failure that is cataclysmic. We are at about nine o'clock uh, right now, 9.03. Um, is there maybe one last question, Joe Banks, or somebody from, uh, has it written down that we could address? Well, if nobody has a question, could I, could I make a quick final comment? You, you can. There is one question that just oh, go came for in. It. Go for it. Uh, Joe Reed, pastorally, how much internal division should be expected, tolerated in these days? I'm presuming he's talking about within the body of Christ, within a church. Well, I mean, I'll take a quick stab at that. I mean, uh, obviously, people can have, uh, can all be Christians, confess the great um, ancient creeds and the, even the Reformational confessions and still have honest disagreement. Uh, however, uh, I don't think it's correct to say that one can disagree on basic uh, fundamental political philosophy within a body. That will breed division. I've had some pastors say, well, I just want you to know we have good members. Some of them are strong Obama supporters. Uh, some of them uh, would be strong Bush supporters, and we all just get along. Well, what he's really saying is he's not really addressing uh, the fundamental issues with regard to politics, because if he did that, then that would cause a friction. Again, I'm not saying everybody has to agree on all political issues, but uh, let me put it this way. To assert the authority of the law of God in all areas of life, including in politics, to do that will create people in the congregation who have a political, who have a particular theology of the state. And ones who and, and who oppose other theologies of the state. So, can you tolerate differences? Sure. Can you tolerate differences that say, "Well, I think abortion's okay," and you know, homosexual marriage? I wouldn't do it myself, but somebody else can do it. No, I'm afraid that's not the kind of diversity that one could tolerate in the Church of Jesus Christ. I, I suppose such a a pastor who might find himself in such a situation. In fact, that very issue happened to hit social media recently. Uh, might uh, reflect on his preaching. How is it that someone could be sitting under my preaching and, uh, and be supportive of such uh, abject horrors? Uh, yeah, that's right. Here's another quick observation. Uh, you don't depoliticize the church when the pastor refuses to address political issues. You actually allow outside alien political influences to influence mm. the congregation. That's a fundamental point. People that say, yes. I'm not going to address, pastors say, I'm not going to address politics, so politics won't influence the church. Wrong. If they don't get their idea from the word of God, they're going to get it from the surrounding culture. Amen. And most of the time, that's going to be a very defective view. Amen. On uh, the second half of uh, Joe's question, he, he's wondering about... Um, how firmly should we stand on the grounds of freedom against the Romans 13 clingers? I like your coinage there, <laughs> Joe. <laughs> um, well, I think that uh, I think that what we what we need to do is we need to take we need to take it to them. In other words, 
we need to uh, we need to give some clear teaching and instruction concerning Romans 13 and other passages that where where Paul speaks to these things and where Jesus speaks to these things it seems to me that we need to take it to these people and show them what the what the scriptures actually do say because because as a, as of course n- nobody that I know actually truly believes in absolute submission to authorities. I, I don't know anybody because if they did, then why aren't they submitting to me when I tell them that tell them something different? Right. Uh, it it doesn't it it just doesn't work that way. Uh, and of course, and of course, I'm not demanding that they uh, submit to me. I'm demanding that they submit to the scriptures. But yeah, I think that I think that that's um, more of a um, more of a fiction. Uh, of this notion of absolute submission than than a reality. <clears throat> Let's do this. We're gonna uh, come to the end. If uh, Ardell or Andrew, if you have any last things to say, maybe uh, uh, before, maybe as we conclude, Joe Reed, if you'd get on and pray for us as we conclude. Um, but before we do that, yeah, Andrew and Ardell, any charge you want to give us or uh, act like Christians, act like men, act like women of God, act like the Church of God or any last things you want to say? Well, I would simply say, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And if it means, if it means that, uh, that certain people are of such weak, weak conditions physically, um, or when you have, uh, and when, you, when you're in, in the presence of people who are senior citizens, I just, I guess I'm, I guess I'm, fitting that category now i don't feel it but uh but when you're in those when you're in their presence um treat them respectfully and do to them what you would expect them to do to you if you were in the uh in their place it seems to me that if if we all lived according to uh to what jesus instructs us there the world would be a very different place Yes, um, I would uh, agree with all that. I would simply say in in, uh, conclusion, we began by talking about the importance of creeds and confessions. Uh, Actually, the very first creed of the Christian church is that in English, the three little words, Jesus is Lord. And uh, when that language is used by the early Christians, it didn't mean Lord only when we come to church. It didn't mean only Lord, we're in the four walls of our house. It means Jesus is Lord of all things. Francis Schaeffer called it the, the Lordship of Christ and the totality of life. I would think in today's secular world, there are few truths more incumbent on us and true practices than recognizing the Lordship of Christ in every single thing we do, including coronavirus and including in politics. There is no point in our lives in which we can take our Christian hat off and say, well, I can act in common with everyone else. No, Jesus Christ didn't buy us on the cross with his own blood, didn't rise from the dead for us so that we could be part-time Christians. Jesus is Lord in all things, and we need to live like that. And uh, if I may just take on to that, it is, it is noteworthy that Paul wrote those very words in the letter that went to Rome, where Caesar declares himself to be Lord. Yeah. Jesus is Lord was written to the Roman Christians, and, uh, and very deliberately, because Paul really does intend that those words mean Caesar is not Lord at all. Yes. That's right. 
Joe Reed, would you like to pray for us as we close, if you're still around? Yes, I'm here. And uh, so thank you so much, uh, Doc Sandlin and Doc Kennedy. Appreciate you guys. You're welcome. Thank you so much. So let me pray. Thanks, Father, for uh, your goodness to us, your grace. Thank you for uh, highly gifted and trained brothers uh, who bring to us wisdom and counsel from your word. We thank you that you have um, made us to be strengthened and grow in difficult hours. And I pray that you continue to do so. Lord, as we go into the night with the glorious words that Jesus is Lord ringing in our ears, pray that it would take even deeper root in our hearts. Make us wise in these days. Make us uh, faithful ministers of the gospel, shepherds of the sheep, um, neighbors, and uh, friends. We ask that you would cause your face to shine upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, um, this is recorded, by the way. Um, Andrew and Ardell, are you comfortable if I share this recording or make this available? Well, you anticipated my question. When you do that, please, I'll uh, share it widely. Thank you. It's a privilege to be on here. And Ardell, you're such an inspiration. Thank you for being a, a man of God who doesn't limit himself just to the ivory tower, but speaks the truth. And Ian and the rest of you, it's been a great blessing to me. So yes, please do that. And I'll share it widely. And it was, Very good. I'm it, was great to, it was great to have you join us tonight, Andrew. Yes. Appreciate it. Joe, I'm, I'm going to, before everybody gets off, Joe Reed, you know about this more than I. How do I share this one? Um, da, 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 da. Zoom will give you a link to it. Get that to me and I'll post it on the blog. Okay. And the blog is, um, let me type it in. It's commonslaves.com. Uh, Yes. Okay. Yep, exactly. So uh, it, I will email that link to Joe. It should come to me in about 10 minutes after this is done. And we'll make sure it's on the blog and be looking for that blog. You need to make, go to the website tonight and sign up for an email update at commonslaves.com where you will find excellent writings, mostly by Joe Reed there. Um, <laughs> and uh, we'll have this up pretty soon. Uh, Eric, can you, I don't want to give you too much extra work. Can you just, no, zip right. me, when you get that link to the actual of this recording, can you zip me, you know, the private message, a private Facebook message, and I'll, that way I can just quickly post it and get everybody on there. I will do everything I possibly can within my technological prowess. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I don't know quite how to take that. <laughs> I, I don't know either. It means I've never done it before, but we'll see if it works. How does that sound? Great. <laughs> Wonderful. Thanks, brothers. Very good. Thank you. God bless Thank you. you all. God bless, bless you. Bye-bye. Good night. Bye.